0: everyone. How are we doing this morning? Man, there is some energy in the room, and guess what? I love it. This is good. I'm excited for this morning, what God has for us. Some of you may or may not know who I am. My name is Andreas, and I'm blessed with being one of the pastors here at Vertical Church. I oversee the student ministry, Vertical Students, and pretty much anything else Pastor Rich needs help with. So that's what I do here, but I am so excited to be here with you this morning. You know, I've been diving into this passage over the course of the last couple weeks, and I truly believe God has laid an important message on my heart um, to share with you all this morning concerning our series, Breakthrough. So we've been in this series, Breakthrough, Finding Victory in a Defeated World, right? Basically trying to find out, all right, we're not just meant to survive as believers in Jesus, we're meant to thrive. And so when we think about this concept of thriving and having breakthrough. We need to start thinking of ways that we can have breakthrough. And for some of us in this room, it may not be the ways that we anticipate breakthrough. And so this is why we've been going through this series out of the book of First Peter. How can we have breakthrough? Pastor Rich last week encouraged us out of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 16. And in this passage, he encouraged us with this, suffering leads to sinning or serving. He challenged us. He said, watch your mouth. Seek peace, get on your knees, and offer hope to others. These are all things that we need to take in and we need to think about for ourselves. And I encourage you, if you haven't watched it or listened to it, go back and listen to the podcast. But first, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's get started this morning, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather as your people in your house this morning. God, I pray that you would soften and prepare our hearts for what you have for us. God, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing both bone and marrow. I pray that today, Lord, that your word, as we know, it will not return void. We pray that it wouldn't. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning, I want to start off by asking all of you a question. Have you ever been naive to anything in life? It's kind of the response I thought we would get. Have you ever been naive to anything in your life? Yeah? Yep, I definitely have as well. So I started thinking about this idea of uh, being naive, and I thought back to 2016. I watched a movie. I was a senior in high school. Many of you have heard of it, Zootopia, right? Some of us love that movie. Some of us don't. But in Zootopia, it's basically a fictional animal kingdom, okay? And you have a woman, or bunny, I should say, uh, named Judy Hopps. Right? And Judy hops all throughout this movie, she's very naive to what's going on around her, right? If you've seen the movie, she's extremely naive, okay? And she makes these different naive assumptions all throughout the movie. Her hope is to be a police officer, and in, in this fictional animal kingdom called Zootopia, bunnies aren't supposed to be cops, okay? And she has a friend named Nick Wilde. Some of us might remember this fox, okay? And he kind of sets her straight. He says this. He says, everyone comes to Zootopia thinking they can be anything they want. Well, you can't. You can only be what you are. Sly fox, dumb bunny. And he kind of sets her straight. He's like, listen, you need to wake up. This is where we live. You're just a dumb bunny, and I'm just a a sly fox. Well, I started thinking after the movie, and I remember this clear as day. I'm like, wow, they made that character super naive. And I thought to myself, Oh, darn, I'm pretty naive as well. Uh-oh. And then I started thinking, man, I'm a senior in high school. What am I naive to? I started thinking, well, I'm naive to the fact that gasoline costs money. I'm naive to the fact that I need to pay bills eventually or college bills. I'm naive to the fact that my parents make, like, super important decisions that I have no idea about and what it entails. And the same thing, I think, can be said for us as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, Unfortunately, I think that we are naive to the sin and brokenness of our world that surrounds us. And no one likes to be said or told that, hey, you're kind of naive. None of us like that. It doesn't necessarily puff us up and make us proud, right? It kind of humbles us, brings us down to a level ground. And I think in in this passage we're going to study today, the Apostle Peter, he's trying to say, hey, you need to humble yourselves. You're naive to a particular area in your walk with Christ. And so this, this area that we may be naive to, it's the sinfulness and brokenness of our world. The uh, famous well-known pastor, Weir, Weir in Wiersbeer, he says this, I love this. He says, the Christian life is not a playground, it is a battleground. And we must be on our guard at all times. See, for some of us in this room, we're not ready for the battle that wages day in and day out. And the Apostle Peter, he's going to tell us, you need to be battle ready. You need to be ready every day for battle because you live in a world that is full of spiritual warfare, that is full of sin and brokenness and wickedness. So this brings us to our question today. How can we be battle ready? In a world that seems at times super peaceful at times, listen, at times, super peaceful and relaxing because we're over here in North America chilling, doing whatever we're doing, right, enjoying certain things in life. As The world as we see it, there's crazy stuff going on. There's wars, there's pestilence, there's all kinds of different things, natural disasters. But here in America, we are blessed in several ways. And I believe that the American church at times is not prepared for certain things that we should be prepared for. Okay, so how can we be battle ready? This leads us to our passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. That's where we're going to be today. A little bit of background to this passage. 1 Peter was obviously written by the Apostle Peter. And he's writing to a group of believers that are scattered all throughout the northern areas of Asia Minor. These Christians include both Jews and Gentiles. And during this time, there's an emperor in Rome named Nero who is reigning. And he's deciding to ramp up all of his persecution against believers in Jesus Christ. He wants to take it to the next level. He wants to hunt down Christians. He wants to put them to shame. He wants to wipe out their Savior, the name of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Over 2,000 years later, guess what? He didn't succeed. Praise God for that. God had bigger and better plans. And in this passage, Peter is going to help us understand how to be battle ready. But first, we need to understand that our passage has close ties to the passage prior. So last week when Pastor Rich preached out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, when we get to verse 18, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. See, we've been considering Jesus Christ as, as an example of one who suffered unjustly, Correct? he suffered at the hands of wicked men for what? For something that was righteous. The idea that sin could be broken and sin could be put away with. And so we need to take this into consideration as we dive into our 11 verses this morning. That Jesus, he is the prime example of someone who suffered unjustly. Someone who suffered at the hands of wicked men. So let's Dive into our passage this morning. I want to change it up a little bit. I want to encourage us, if you're able to, stand with us as we read God's word. As I read it, and I want to encourage all of us, if we're able, to just stand. This is the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord, as I referred to earlier, is sharpened, a two-edged sword. It's powerful. These are God's words to us, and we need to show honor and respect to it. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, and carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This passage can be broken up into two different parts. The first part we'll find in verses 1 to 6. And the first part is called the choice. You see, every day, each of us make choices. We make decisions. Hundreds, thousands of different choices. Even every second, we're thinking about a future choice that we have to make. And the Apostle Peter, he's encouraging us that you and I, all of us in this room, we have to make a particular choice. And the choice is this. We have to choose to suffer or choose to sin. And for some of us in this room, that might sound like a wild, a wild decision. But as believers in Jesus Christ, this is what we're called to. We have to choose whether we are going to suffer with Christ or whether we are going to sin and do whatever the world wants to do. And I love how the Apostle Peter starts this passage. He says this. He says, arm yourselves. This is important for us to understand this theologically packed and practical passage. So I want to encourage you, underline, arm yourselves, circle those two words. If we don't understand these two words before getting into this passage we're not gonna understand the entire passage together. We need to understand what it means to arm ourselves. And so when we look at what it means to arm ourselves, it essentially means this, to be prepared, to be battle ready. Because we do, we live in a world that sin is infested. There's sin everywhere, we're in a broken world and so as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to arm ourselves, the Greek, says it this way, basically, to be equipped, to take up as a weapon. Are we equipped as believers in Jesus Christ to face sin every day in the face, to face temptation every day? Whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's at home, sin surrounds us. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to fight against sin. We live in a world where people say, do whatever you want to do. Whatever pleases you, just do it. That goes directly against God's word. God's word challenges us and encourages us to do what he says to do. Why? Because what he says is best for us. His way, trust me, is the best way. Many of us in this room, we have done things, we have said things that we thought was the right way. And guess where it led us? Right where scripture tells us, to death and destruction. And this is why it's so important for us to be battle ready. So what does it mean to be battle ready? It simply means to be prepared. So here's some questions for us to ask ourselves. Are we taking the doctrine of a fallen world seriously? As believers in Jesus, do we understand that we live in a fallen world? Do we understand what that means? That for some of us in this place, we go to work And we might be the only Christian in that place. And temptations surround us. Are we going to follow what our coworkers are doing? Or are we going to do what we know is the right thing to do? Are we going to start gossiping about people? Are we going to start saying negative things about people? Are we going to join in with whatever they're doing? Or are we going to be obedient to what God's word says? Are we naive to the sin around us? Do we have a realistic view of a fallen world? See, Peter isn't trying to scare us. He's trying to prepare us. One of my favorite Christian authors of all time, some of you may know who this is, but his name is Oswald Chambers. If you've ever read the devotional Utmost for His Highest, I highly encourage that devotional. It's a devotional I personally read every day. It's a devotional that is very challenging, but I love this. He says this about when it comes to Christian suffering, God's will. He says no healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Whether it means suffering or not. The verse goes on and says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude or the same mind. Or, other translations say, the same purpose. Peter's reminding his audience that we must be willing to suffer for doing what is right. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we following God's will even if it means suffering? Are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a question we need to ask all of ourselves. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, guess what? Our own Savior himself faces temptation. Satan comes and tries to tempt him and tries to tell him, you can have everything. He says this, he says, I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. But what does Jesus do? In that moment, our Savior stood strong and he knew that the Father's will was much greater than what Satan was telling him. What was the Father's will for Jesus Christ? It was for him to suffer. The Father's will was for his own son to suffer so that you and I could have a right relationship with God, so that sin could be defeated, that the world that is infested with sin could be made new one day. This is why Jesus willingly went to the cross. It was the Father's will for him to do so. And every day you and I are, are tasked with the question it's either the Father's will, or our own will. At the end of the day, we should all understand and know that God's will is greater than our own personal will. He has great plans for us. We may not understand them at every corner, but what we do know is we have a Savior, a God, who's fully in control. He's sovereign. He's over everything. Maybe you had a horrible week. That sucks. I'm sorry you did. But guess what? We have a God who is over everything. And that should bring us peace, even in the worst of things in our lives. And that's tough to hear because we live in a world where we want answers immediately. But sometimes God says, wait, I have something greater in store. So we need to be asking ourselves, are we following God's will even if it means suffering? There will come moments in our lives where we're going to have a choice to sin, to follow what everyone else is doing, or to suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, it's not easy to follow Jesus Christ, but it is 100% completely worth it. So if there's someone in this room who thinks, oh man, if I follow Jesus, everything's gonna be put perfectly into place. I'm gonna make so much money. I'm gonna get everything I want. Guess what? Reality check. That's not how Jesus works. He's not a genie in a bottle. He is a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. That is the Savior we worship. That is the Savior that has rescued and redeemed us. His will is greater than our will. Let's not forget, Jesus not only follows the will of the Father, but yes, he says no to sin, and we know in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. And we must, too, say no to sin. And we cannot, in our own strength, say no to sin. We need the help of Jesus every day to say no to sin. To say no to that, 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 that deal that someone wants to make with you in your business that you know isn't God-honoring. To say no to, to sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. To say no to moving in with someone. To say no to cheating on a test or a quiz. We need to be able to say no and we can only do so with the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we do have a battle waging inside of us. It's called the flesh. And the flesh, in Galatians chapter 5, it dives deep into what the flesh is. And basically the flesh does whatever the flesh wants to do and we need to say no to it. It's called self-control. A lot of us in this room, including myself, we need to learn self-control every day. It's something we need to be reminded of every day. Unfortunately, I think this is something, I'm going to speak to men right now, it's something as men I think we veered off from. Self-control, self-discipline. As men, we need to be disciplined. We need to be self-controlled because that's what God calls us to for the sake of our wives and for our families. We need to be self-controlled. We must say no to sin. He goes on, he says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. He isn't saying we won't sin anymore to this side of heaven. What he is saying is we must choose God's will over our own sinful desires. We must say no to the... Old ways, i.e. debauchery, drunkenness, orgy, carousing, detestable idolatries. And guess what? Every sin you see in this passage, take a look at the passage. Look at every sin. Guess what? What I believe is that every one of those sins refers to self, self idolatry, the idea that we worship ourselves. And Peter's saying, don't do that. Instead, he's saying, we need to say no to the old ways. I love what this, this idea I've heard. It's basically as simple as this. Many of us know this, but when a criminal testifies against another criminal, what happens? They usually get a, get a good deal, usually, okay? So for example, they're given a fresh start in exchange for their help or for whatever they've told the authorities. Maybe a new name, a new home, a new life. No one knows of their past, and they can either go straight or revert, or revert to the old ways, This this is the same for a Christian as given a new life by God in God's eyes. The old life of sin is done away with. And catch this, the statute of limitations has run out. And then we get to verse 4. I love verse 4. This is probably my favorite verse within this passage. It says this, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Who is they? Who is they? They is those who don't know Jesus. They is those who decided to follow sin instead of Jesus. And guess what? How many of us in this room have ever been told, hey man, what's up with you, dude? You're just like different today. I started following Jesus. How many of us have ever been, uh, been, been told, you know, you're making a lot of changes in your life. I don't really know what's going on. I started following Jesus. I don't want to go do whatever you're doing anymore. I don't want to go to the bar late at night and get drunk. It's not God honoring. I don't want to do that. One word, Jesus. I love how it says that. They're surprised. They're shocked. Are we shocking those around us that we're following Jesus? I sure hope so. I want to shock those around me. I don't think, whoa, dude, what's up with this Dude. Oh, yeah, he's following Jesus. He's a Jesus freak, right? Or he's a fanatic, right? That's what it is. So let's get to our big idea for this morning. Our big idea is suffering for Christ is to be counted as a privilege. Suffering for Christ is to be counted as a privilege. When we think about the choice of whether we choose to sin or to suffer, we need to remind ourselves every day that to suffer for Christ should be counted as a privilege. When you came to faith in Jesus, you were called His child. You were given a new name, a new identity. And every time you face suffering, it is a privilege. It may not seem like it in the moment, It may not seem like it for several years, but when it comes to what God's Word says and how Christians throughout the last over 2,000 years have suffered, several missionaries, several martyrs, they counted it a privilege to die for Jesus Christ. They counted their suffering as a privilege for Jesus. So when someone says to you, dude, I can't believe you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? That's ridiculous. Count that as a privilege. When someone says to you, I can't talk to you because you're a believer in Jesus, count that as a privilege, because you are a follower of Jesus, and his way is greater. This leads us to our second half of our passage, verses 7 to 11. We're going to call this section the actions, and what's going to follow are six different actions. See, I told you earlier on, this this passage is packed theologically. It's also packed practically. There are some practical steps as believers in Jesus that we can follow. And so from verses 7 to 11, these are steps as believers in Jesus we need to follow every day. Steps that we need to be challenging ourselves. Maybe we're really good at one or two or three or four of the steps, but maybe we're weak on one or the other. These are steps we need to work on as believers in Jesus. So the first step is this, be anticipating. Be anticipating. Be anticipating. We see this in verse 7. As verse 7 starts off, it says, the end of all things is near. I don't know about you, but that gets me excited. The end of all things is near. Why does that get me excited? Well, some people believe this passage is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, maybe the rapture, the return of Christ to reign. What I believe this passage is referring to is the destruction of the heavens and the earth at the end of the millennium. Simply put, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth one day. And this is what we can be anticipating as believers in Jesus. This sinful, broken, fallen world where we see potholes, we see stuff on the news every day, guess what? It's not going to last. It's going to be destroyed one day. And our God is going to put a new heaven and a new earth in place where we get to worship him for all of eternity. Where we get to be in communion with him. Who's excited? I'm stoked for that. And so it's something, the the apostle Peter, he's trying to tell us, all right, now you know the choice. Here are the actions you need to take. You've made your choice. Hopefully you chose to suffer with Christ over sin. Now put it to action. Be anticipating the new heavens and the new earth. Some days, guess what, that's harder for us to do than others. And so I want to encourage us to remind ourselves of this. This is not all there is. This is not all there is. We need to remind ourselves of that every day. This isn't all there is. So maybe you crash your truck, you crash your car, you're like, dude, this sucks. That's horrible. That is horrible. But guess what? It's not all there is. Maybe you lose a lot of money, maybe something bad. It's not all there is. God has something bigger and greater in store for us that is going to blow our ever flipping minds. He has amazing things in store. So we need to be anticipating. Then we need to be alert. The verse goes on and says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. What does being alert mean? It simply means being ready. Being ready. Be ready at all times, right? Scripture says be ready in and out of season. What? To share the gospel, right? So we need to be ready. I love what Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44 say. It says this, therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. and would not have let his house be broken into. Verse 44. So you also must be ready. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Listen. There are so many people out there who are, who are claiming that a particular hour and a day that Jesus is going to return. Listen. Don't listen to those people. They literally don't know. Scripture says they don't know. So you need to take that with a grain of salt when someone says that. It's literally in Scripture. So we need to take that with a grain of salt. So when we take that with a grain of salt, we need to be alert because we don't know. Jesus could come back 10 seconds from now. I have no idea. But what I do know is that he is sovereign, that he is over everything, and that his grand plan is far greater than our plan. And so in the meantime, being alert, being ready, it simply means this. We need to be reflecting Jesus Christ every day. We need to be reflecting him on a consistent basis. The goal of a believer is to become more like Jesus day in and day out. All right, the third action we have is be prayerful. We'll see this in verse 7 as well. It says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So we need to be prayerful. Listen. For many of us in this room, including myself, there are times where I pray more, and there are times where I pray less. I believe what Paul is trying to get across to us is that we need to have a consistent prayer life, that no matter the circumstance we have in our lives, whether someone has passed away in our lives, whether we've done something we shouldn't have done, we need to have a consistent prayer life. It shouldn't be like this, right? It should be like this. If not, at least going upward, right? Up and to the right, I don't know, what's that saying? Listen, (laughs) we need to have a consistent prayer life. Consistency is key in our prayer lives. I remember playing midget football growing up. We called it midget football. You might call it peewee football, I don't know. And every time I would hit the field, I had this good luck ritual, okay? I would get on my knee and pray, kind of like Tim Tebow, but guess what? I did it every play, that's kind of weird, okay? Just say it's kind of weird. I did it, why? Because I thought it would bring me good luck. I thought that Jesus was a genie in a bottle and that I would get something from it, right? I had a very inconsistent prayer life. And I later came out to find out that, you know, Jesus calls us to have a consistent prayer life and not to do it for good luck or for ritual, but to do it because we want to have a relationship with him because just like any relationship in life, we want to talk to the person that we love, And we want to hear from the person that we love. And that's what it means to have a prayer life, to be able to talk with Jesus, to be able to share our hearts with Jesus, and to be able to hear what he has for us, all right? So let's be prayerful. Leads us to our third action step, be loving. Be loving. And this might be one of the key ones, key actions within our passage. Be loving. Verse 8 says, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Let me just start off by saying, love, love itself does not take away our sins. Jesus' blood takes away our sins, okay? So some of us, we might come to the conclusion, read this passage, oh, love takes away, no, Je- only Jesus' blood can take away our sins. Only his death, burial, and resurrection can take away our sins so this type of love that's referred to in this passage it isn't a romantic love it's more so a sibling kind of love okay some of us in this room we have siblings that are difficult to love right maybe we got in a lot of fights i have a twin brother identical twin brother guess what we fought all the time i may have came out all the time as well but uh, victorious but it's okay Um, it's a sibling kind of love So what Peter's trying to tell us, as the body of Christ, he's trying to tell us, each of us, if we've received Christ, we have brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're called to love each other, okay? There can be moments in our lives where we forget this, right? Maybe we have a a difficulty loving another brother or sister in Christ. Guess what? It's tough to love people. It is. It's tough, but The Apostle Peter tells us that we need to love each other on a deep level, on a brother and sister kind of level. And and 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 says this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, and endures all things. This is the type of love we should have for our brother and sister in Christ. This love helps us to have the ability to overlook minor faults and failures of others who love Jesus. We need to believe the best, we need to hope for the best in them, and simply put, we need to put others first, all right? So this leads us to our fourth action step, fourth action step, be hospitable. Verse nine talks talks about offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, okay? I think most of this room understand what it means to be hospitable, What it means to to be a person who shows hospitality to one another. It's the idea of serving one another, right? Going the extra mile, right? Going the extra mile for one another. We are called to serve each other without holding any hopes of something in return. That's the difficult part, right? We serve someone, and we think that we need to get something back in return for doing that, right? You know, over the, uh, the past week, Last week on Wednesday, the students, we gathered for a Friendsgiving. And an individual in the church made all of the food for our Thanksgiving meal. All of it. That's huge. She went the extra mile, made all of it to show hospitality to 80-some students who may not know her name, right? She didn't expect anything in return. She just wanted to be someone who is hospitable to other believers. That's what it's about, showing love to others. Unfortunately, I think there are times, as believers in Jesus Christ, we forget to to be hospitable to our brothers and sisters. Instead, we focus so much on reaching people for Jesus, which is great. We need to reach people for Jesus. But we neglect our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't do that. It needs to be balanced It needs to be even keel, right? We need to be loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to be reaching the world for Jesus, all right? So this leads us to our sixth and final action. We need to be willing. Be willing. In verse 10 it says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, And then it goes on and it talks about the gift of speaking. It talks about the gift of serving. Listen, what Peter's trying to get across to us, we need to put that choice we made right earlier, suffering or sin, hopefully suffering, we need to be willing. Each and every single person in this room has at least one gift God has given them to use to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Are you using the gift God has given you or are you hiding it? Are you sitting on the benches watching the game? not participating we all have gifts some of us we don't love public speaking that's okay there's so many different things that happen in the church that that i can't do right if you ever meet lyle lyle's on our he's the basically our maintenance dude right that man can do things i can't even dream or think or imagine of doing okay we're all gifted differently we're all different parts of the body of jesus That we're all important we're all necessary for the furtherment of the gospel of jesus so we need to be willing to use our gifts and this leads us back to our big idea suffering for christ is to be counted as a privilege we need to just embed this into our minds suffering for christ should be counted as a privilege so we have our six action steps Be anticipating, be alert, be prayerful, be loving, be hospitable, and be willing. And ultimately, suffering for Christ is to be counted as a privilege. This morning, I want to end with a story of a woman named Helen Roosevelt. Some of you may or may never have heard of this name, okay? And it wouldn't shock me if many of us in this room don't know who this woman is. But this woman was English, and she ended up serving as a missionary doctor in the Congo, okay, during the early 1960s. And if anyone knows their history about the Congo in the early 1960s, there was an insane civil war. There was up, uh, upheaval. There was unrest. It was, a, it was just a bad time, okay? And Helen Roosevelt decided that she was gonna go over there and help and share the gospel of Jesus while also trying to aid in any physical ailments that individuals had. So she goes over there, okay, from my knowledge, as a a single woman, okay, single woman, this is crazy, like, people only do this if they truly love Jesus, okay, so she goes over there, and she decides to serve, and unfortunately, what happens is, she is taken prisoner for something she didn't do, right, she was raped, she was spit upon, she was mocked, horrible things happened to this woman, but I want you to hear what she says about suffering for Jesus. Let it soak into the depths of your souls because what this woman has to say is profound. She says this. Of that traumatic time, she says, I wasn't praying. I was beyond praying. Someone back home was praying earnestly for me. If I had pray, prayed any prayer, it would have been, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And suddenly there was God I didn't see a vision, I didn't hear a voice, I just knew with every ounce of my being that God was actually vitally there. God in all his majesty and his power, he stretched out his arms to me, he surrounded me with his love, and he seemed to whisper to me, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it, don't you want it? Fantastic, the privilege of being identified with our Savior as I was dr- driven down the short, short corridor of my home. It was as though he clearly said to me, these are not your sufferings. They're not beating you. These are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And the innumerous relief swept through me. One word became unbelievably clear. And that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, and in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed, in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost. But I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and preeminence of the privilege. Can you, will you believe it and enter into it? Amen. A woman who is beat, who suffered at the hands of wicked men, who is raped, who is mocked, if she... Can go over to the congo right and share the gospel of jesus christ willingly knowing that her life was in danger and we're sitting here in north america like hey this is great someone said something bad about me someone mocked me this woman says it's a privilege to suffer for jesus christ do we believe that it is a privilege to suffer for jesus When most of us in this room, there may be some individuals in this room who have suffered like she had. But most of us in this room have never suffered the way she did. Yet she says, I count it a privilege. Does our suffering mean anything as believers in Jesus? A resounding yes. Can we say yes? For a Christian who knows the suffering of Christ it can mean a chance to share in his sufferings for his glory as we serve him with our lives. It's all about his glory, not ours. We suffer not on our own behalf, but on the behalf of a savior who knows and loves us. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I know that there are brothers and sisters in this room who are suffering. God, I pray that they would not see it as a divine absence, but that they would see the suffering as your divine grace in and through their lives. That you know what they're going through. You know the struggle. You know the pain. But as believers in Jesus, you call us to further the gospel no matter the circumstance, no matter the suffering that could occur. This is why you tell us in the book of Matthew that we will have trouble in this world. But take heart, you say, I have overcome the world. Father, help us to remember that this is not all there is, but that the new heaven and the new earth will be put into place one day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, I just want to encourage you. Our prayer team is going to come forward. Just give them a few seconds, and they're going to be here to pray for you. I hope you all have a blessed day. God bless.